Welcome to the Well-Balanced 360 Podcast, where we dive into the latest and best tips on medicine and spirituality to help you master your health and overcome your fears so that you can feel your absolute best. I'm your host, Dr. Shivani, a licensed medical doctor, a yoga nerd, and a wellness enthusiast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. Now let's dive in. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Raghu Apasani, a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and mental health advocate based out of Los Angeles, California. We discuss how sharing your personal stories can actually be very beneficial for your mental health. Well, thank you for joining me today, Raghu. I'm so excited to have you on, especially given that it's Mental Health Awareness Month and this is such an important topic. Before we get started, I just wanted my listeners to know who you are. So if you can give us your background of what it is that you do. Sure. So yeah, I'm Dr. Raghu Apasani. I am a psychiatrist based in Los Angeles. And I'm also founder and CEO of the Minds Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I started back in 2010. So it's been a while. And we primarily focus on trying to increase mental health literacy and access to care so that anyone anywhere has the availability of mental health resources because we all deserve to have it. And this year has really shown us the importance of having access to those types of resources. Yeah, and my next question was, can you tell me about the Minds Foundation? But why did you feel it was important to start in the first place? Because I know you've started it a while ago and you've done such great work, not only in India, but even bringing it to the United States. Yeah. So most of my background was actually doing research in the neuroscience and psychiatry field, primarily in labs and so forth. And it was good. And I learned a lot and I had great mentors, but I really felt somehow connected back to India, where my family is originally from, where I spent significant amount of time as a child and as an adult now. And I was volunteering there. And it was the first time I really experienced the true definition of human suffering when I was volunteering in India, in rural India, especially. And it really came down to the fact that people's mental health, whether it was the chicken or the egg in this situation, really contributes to the decline in their quality of life. For me, my lens of how I see the world is that if we can provide a good foundational mental well-being, people can actually thrive in their own lives. And so the time period I was volunteering in India, I also had a cousin going through the mental health care system. And so I witnessed a lot of the stigma within the South Asian culture in my own family and soon recognized that that stigma is pretty prevalent across the world. And back in 2009, 2010, when I was coming up with this idea, nobody was working in the space, really. There were mental health researchers working in global mental health, but in terms of actual implementation of community level grassroots work, I did not come across anyone in India at the time. And so for me, I grew up learning, as you might have too, Shivani, that education is really the key to change and to transformation and to growth. And so I felt, why don't we apply that principle to mental health? And I felt that we should be providing mental health education to increase mental health literacy, regardless of where the person is, right? And going against the assumptions of people who are poor are not going to understand mental health. Well, that's complete BS, right? I mean, anyone can understand it. it's about how you deliver it. And so we've designed a program that we deliver mental health education tailored towards the communities we work in, 
villages, semi-urban areas, schools, training teachers, training community health workers, and really gearing it towards what the needs are and how they can understand it and apply it in their own lives. So instead of throwing programs and services at them, it's more about empowering them with the tools to make the decisions on their own of what avenue they want to go in terms of treatment. And so that's really what inspired me to start. And it's been an incredible journey in which I've learned so many stories, met so many people, and just learned that when it comes to healing, we have to think about collective healing and we have to think about the lived experience and really highlight the stories of people who have gone through it and build community that way. Because by hearing stories, we can connect with one another and learn how to actually better our own lives and well-being. Given what is happening in the world today and post-pandemic in America, South Asians, especially what's happening in India right now, are going through many different emotions, sadness, anger, irritability, all of it. What advice would you give somebody that is going through this and just feeling upset all around? What advice would you give them? Where do they even start? That's a great question. And I speak to people in India every single day, whether it's the team at Minds or my family who is dealing with this whole situation. In South Asian culture, as you know, there was a lot of avoidance of speaking about mental health and saying, oh, well, it doesn't really affect us, or a lot of suppression that can present oftentimes as shame or guilt or anger or irritability. And we've come to a point now, and India has come to a point now, where there's nowhere to run. And we're being faced with these mental health symptoms and signs, and everyone is dealing with it. Even if you've never dealt with it, you can't lie and say you're not stressed out right now or you're not feeling particularly anxious or fearful because everyone is dealing with it. And so we're in a place where people are physically feeling what poor mental health feels like. So it's actually a time that we can have the conversation now more openly without as much stigma, which in a way is a positive thing. On the other hand, we don't have enough resources to address all of these people who require, whether it's just a check-in or therapy or medication, we just don't have the resources right now. And we are trying to scale that up. And a lot of people are trying to scale that up right now. Some of the things that I have found to be most effective, and these are also things that my own family and the team at Minds has said was when stuck in isolation and during the lockdown, particularly in India, the most beneficial thing has been those phone calls with loved ones and even just checking in and having that sense of connection, whether it's just a phone call or Zoom or FaceTime. That's been sort of the thing that most people have been looking forward to in their day because it combats that uncertainty when you wake up every day and you have to remember, is my family member who's dealing with COVID in a different city still alive and doing okay. So that check-in and checking in on one another genuinely is really going to help you. Another thing that I did throughout quarantine and the pandemic was my journaling and my meditation really became a very consistent practice. And it gave me an outlet to really express a lot of the thoughts that I was having. And I typically did a meditation and then I would journal afterwards to kind of process the types of things that would come up. So those things really, really helped me out. And then 
I would just recommend someone taking a step back and thinking about what are the things that they can control and what are the things they can't control. You can't control the government. You can't control politics. You can't control the virus, but you can control what you're eating. And you can eat foods that help you enhance your mood, right? You can eat greens and vegetables and stay consistent with the routine. You can physically move around in the space that you're in, even if you can't leave. There are things you can do. You can do a breathing exercise. You can do a meditation. You can journal. Really first taking a step back and making a list of those things and then being able to apply these tools, I find to be the most beneficial. And I've heard from others to be the most beneficial as well. Yeah, you bring up some really good points about journaling and definitely food as being medicine. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But what I wanted to ask you is South Asians, especially the South Asian women, I know I'm kind of putting a little bit of a stigma on this, but we tend to gossip a lot, right? So it's hard for some women, South Asian women and Asians in general to speak up and even men about their trauma because they fear they're going to be judged or it's seen as a weakness. What advice would you give somebody that's going through that? Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And that leads to a lot of intergenerational trauma that gets passed down. And a lot of South Asian men, they present with a lot of irritability or anger, which is oftentimes depression. So a lot of men present depression is with anger, irritability. I think a lot of women, unfortunately, through just South Asian culture and the way that households have been historically framed, sort of suppress their emotions and they don't really share. And you know, the gossip factor is pretty funny. It reminds me because my grandmother, we used to call her the BBC radio because she would know everyone's business. <laughs> and so, you know, lockdowns in particular is difficult for her because she can't go around and gossip with everyone. <laughs> but it's the thing, right? I mean, that's an outlet. And I think that we've had years and years and decades of this culture where it's not okay to necessarily talk about your emotions and your feelings directly, but we've been doing it indirectly. So more and more people are openly speaking about it. And I think that the more stories we have, the more relatability there will be amongst the general South Asian population. And hopefully people will start to speak up a little bit more. And so what I would encourage is just to find one close friend if you're not willing to go to therapy yet or you're not comfortable with it, just finding that one close friend that you trust to start having that conversation because most likely they're probably holding on to their own story that they haven't been able to share either. Yes, is it a risk technically to take that first step? Maybe, but by sharing your story, you are helping other people because a lot of us are dealing with the same or similar issues. What are the top signs of anxiety and depression since they're so common? They do have a lot in common as well that you need to watch out for before somebody would need to seek help. Sure. And I think that therapy is definitely something that can be for anybody, regardless of how they're doing. It's really about just finding a fit for yourself. So I would encourage anyone to really approach that and be open to it. However, if you're finding that someone in your family or loved ones or in your circle needs help, definitely provide that for them and take them to seek help. The things that we would typically look for is, are they having signs and symptoms that are interfering with their life? 
And it's hard to evaluate that in the context of a pandemic because a lot of us are dealing with these issues. But what I would say basically is their sleep changing in terms of they're not getting enough sleep or they're getting too much sleep or they're unable to sleep or waking up a lot. Are they losing interest and motivation in things? Are you noticing that? They're saying no to activities or engaging socially with you. Are they kind of isolating themselves a bit? Or are they doing the opposite of that, right? So it's basically, do you see a change from quote unquote, the norm or baseline of the person? Substance abuse is something to really, really look into. I mean, a lot of people, especially during lockdown, I mean, I think there was a statistic that there was a 400% increase in alcohol use globally. And then that can lead to other issues like domestic violence, which also went up during the lockdown. So really looking at, is this person's behavior changing from what you normally see them doing? And the anxiety, if you can see them physically, are they a little bit more irritable or restless? Do they look fatigued or tired? Are they just kind of on edge? So those are the things I would really look for. And also listening, just really intentionally, actively listening to what they're saying. And if you notice in the way that they're speaking, that they sound a little bit more depressed or they're saying things like they feel lonely or disconnected or kind of lost or spacey, or they can't concentrate on their work as much. So those are all things to really look into. Those are great techniques. And you kind of mentioned this before on food, right? We all know food is medicine. What are some foods that people could eat for mood disorder? Is there a connection between mood disorder and mental health? And what are some supplements, if any? Obviously, given they check in with their personal physician prior to doing anything, but are there things you recommend? Sure, definitely. I'm not like an expert on this per se, but as a psychiatrist, there's definitely a very clear correlation between what you put into your body and how you feel. And there's a lot of research looking at the gut brain or gut mind hypothesis, which makes sense. So I would recommend people do their own research on that as well before they make decisions. But foods that cause inflammation, so typically heavy dairy products, fatty foods, a lot of red meat, for example, the inflammation releases a lot of stress hormones and other hormones that can in turn impact your mood and make you more fatigued or anxious sugar, for example, it's basically a drug. It's an addictive drug. Yes, we all need a little bit of it and it's not bad in moderation, but modern day foods are loaded with sugar. They're loaded with fatty acids. They're loaded with all of these pesticides and chemicals. And those things, our bodies are not evolutionarily designed to be absorbing. So basically I would encourage people to just take it back, take it back to the essentials Take it back to the things that carry the micronutrients and vitamins and minerals and amino acids that we really need. So things that are green, when you look at your plate, you have sort of, for lack of a better way, like all colors of the rainbow on your plate. And is it something that looked beautiful? Because if it does, then you're covering your bases, right? At your kale, your spinach, your asparagus, your bell peppers. So load it up with all of these nutritious foods and you'll notice a change relatively quickly in how you feel, right? I mean, I try to eat healthy, but this year has been really difficult as a healthcare worker. And there's been moments where I couldn't really have the time and I had to go to the hospital cafeteria and eat something that necessarily wasn't the healthiest thing. And I noticed how it brings me down versus when I have 
a smoothie or a very nutritious meal that I can prepare on my own at home. There's mm -hmm. a huge difference. So I would recommend people just taking a step back and taking back control on what they're putting in their body. That's great advice. And I also noticed that about myself. There are times where I just go towards sugary foods and I feel so bad versus when I'm eating, I don't necessarily go for the red apple, but I have this new joke that when I eat two to three apples a day, it keeps the therapist away. It's only a joke. <laughs> I believe in therapy, but it's true. The cleaner you eat, the better you'll feel. I know that you're now an advisor to a supplement company. Can you tell me about that? I wouldn't necessarily say we're a supplement, but we're a mental health company. It's called PYM, P-Y-M, stands for Prepare Your Mind. And it was started by Zach Williams, who's a huge mental health advocate in the space. And our whole goal is not necessarily to treat clinical mental illness, right? We kind of leave that to the medical professionals. Our goal is to help people who have these sort of everyday feelings of stress and overwhelm, and they might not meet clinical criteria but they would benefit from something. And as you know, we have a balance between our fight or flight and our rest and digest or our sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. But as we were just talking about, a lot of the things that we consume in modern society don't really fit into that system. And also everyday stressors have changed from a tiger chasing us to our boss hounding us on Slack or WhatsApp with messages. Our stress levels have changed. And so that in turn leads to differences in the balances of amino acids and neurotransmitters that we have. So our approach is, can we help people with their mood and with their feelings of overwhelm and stress by helping balance out their neurotransmitters and amino acids? So we try to provide natural products that are already endogenous to our bodies. So they're already within us, but we might be off balance. So it's a dietary supplement to help you balance it out. And so, yeah, the first product, it's a basic Muchu, three natural ingredients, GABA, L-thionine, and rhodiola, all of which are relatively safe. But obviously, if you have any other medical conditions or on any medication, speak to your physician first to make sure that they're aware and they can guide you through the process. So yeah, pretty excited about what's to come because I think that it really fills a gap for a huge population that might not necessarily need psychiatric medication, but they would benefit from something that they could take every day or in those moments of high stress. Yeah, I saw, and I'm excited to try it. So I'm happy for you guys. I wanted to touch on psychedelics, right? There actually was an article today in the New York Times stating that MDMA could potentially help with post-traumatic disorder and anxiety as well as some other conditions. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I totally agree with that. The research was published in Nature with the leading journal globally in the science and medicine field. And so I've been following that trial for many years now. And there is a lot of promise. And we do need advancements in the field of psychiatry from a pharmacological standpoint. So I'm really excited that the psychedelic field has resurfaced it's almost like a renaissance right now of all of the research happening. Very excited about it. What I would say is that it's really important for people to realize that this is not for everybody. Similar to how we prescribe medications, one medication is not necessarily appropriate for every single person. So it's really important to do this in a very controlled setting. It's important to get a full evaluation because if someone, for example, has other conditions 
or pre-existing traumas or their own history, right? Their own story. It's important to evaluate, will MDMA or any other psychedelic for that matter be appropriate for them? So it's really promising. I'm pretty excited about the research with that, with psilocybin, with ketamine that's coming out. But I would highly, highly recommend people to make sure they speak with their providers and find the right person to really move forward if the decision is that they would like to potentially try it to help themselves. The container and who's administering these potential medications, plant medicine or whatever it is, is really important. And the integration is too, because there's a lot of people that are just microdosing psilocybin as well. And they keep doing it or they'll take a little too much. And I've seen that go wrong very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can definitely go wrong. And I've seen people end up in hospitals and psychiatric units who have done that. There's a huge benefit to it. It's promising, but please just take the right steps and go to the right professionals. What role do you feel our generation plays in helping to destigmatize mental health? Pretty significant. <laughs> I mean, we are a generation who we've been through a lot. And as a whole generation, millennials slash Gen Z, for those that are younger, our role is really to do what the generation before us couldn't do, which is actually openly speak about feelings, emotions, about our own mental health and our stories. And so the power of storytelling is the way that we're really going to change the field of mental health. And so the more that people can share their stories, recognizing that other people will relate to them, the more we can really change the stigma and the approach that we have to mental health and just having it an everyday conversation. It's beautifully said. And Is there anything else you feel is helpful for us to know in terms of mental health and spreading mental health awareness? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I would say is share your story, regardless of what it is, because at the very least, one person will be able to relate and that will really help them connect and not feel so alone. Just check in with somebody once a day. That's how we're really going to make changes in the whole landscape. And I love asking this to all my guests. Do you believe there's a connection between medicine and spirituality? Yes. (laughs) A positive thought process can definitely change your behavior consciously and unconsciously. If you think about the individual versus the human, I would encourage people to try to be more human versus individual. And by that, I mean that as an individual, we're often told to do really well and to succeed and to almost be a bit selfish versus human, you're doing things and living life with intention to accelerate the collective society as a whole versus just yourself. And so there is obviously a very spiritual component to that, because I do believe that we are in a collective society, and there is a unified consciousness that we can work towards. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Raghu. Where can people find you and learn more about your work? Sure. Thank you for having me. And For those that want to learn more about the Minds Foundation, they can visit mindsfoundation.org. And for me, they can just find me on Instagram or LinkedIn. It's R. Apasani on both of those. Thank you again. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Well-Balanced 360 podcast. I'm truly grateful for all of you and excited to have you join me on this health and wellness journey. 
Please be sure to stay connected with me over at drshivaniamin.com or any of my social media platforms. If you found this episode to be helpful, I would truly appreciate it if you would also hit that subscribe button and make sure to tell all your friends so you don't miss any future episodes. I'll catch you next week.